Hello, cyclocross friends, and thanks for tuning in to episode 223 of Cyclocross Radio. On today's show, we are talking to Pat Lemieux, former professional cyclist. We even dabbled in cyclocross. Uh, currently has his own athlete management firm that he's running. We also talk about his uh, life as the behind-the-scenes guy for his wife, Gwen Jorgensen, the Olympic gold triathlete and now professional runner. And uh, yeah, we, we pretty much run the gamut from talking about the current state of cyclocross to his work representing athletes like Ellen Noble and uh, everything else under the sun. Good conversation. It was great to have Pat on the show. Before we get to it, I quickly want to tell you about the Wide Angle Podium Podcast Network, which Cyclocross Radio is a part of. If you go over to WideAnglePodium.com, you will get all of the shows that are on the network, including Nowhere Fast, Criterium Nation. Criterium Nation just put out a couple great episodes I'd love for you to go check out. Also, the Slow Ride Podcast, Grodio, threatening to come back at some point. A really great lineup. We'd love to have your support. Get over to WideAnglePodium.com, click on the donate button, become a member. It really helps us to continue to provide the content that you're looking for. Also, part of the network is the Wide Angle Podium YouTube channel. A little guy from Slow Ride is putting out his race previews for all the professional road racing going on right now. They are a hoot. Go check them out. It is YouTube.com slash Wide Angle Podium or WideAnglePodium.com slash YouTube. You decide. They both work. All right, let's get into it. We got Pat Lemieux on episode 223 of Cyclocross Radio, and we're doing that right now. Okay, Pat, how is it in Portland today? 48 and pouring rain, if you can believe that. <laughs> So it's, uh, you know, Portland is doing what Portland is doing. So, um, yeah, we'll see the sun eventually. It'll be okay. I'll get back out on my bike. We'll be all right. You guys were just, uh, didn't you, weren't you traveling, weren't you down in Arizona or somewhere else? Yeah, we did. Yeah. I mean, to, to be fair, we did, I, I did, uh, January and half of, uh, February so far in, in Arizona. So granted we were in Flagstaff, so we did have, uh, some, some bursts of winter there, but, um, yeah, tons of sunshine, and uh, it was a great it was a great way to start the year. Yeah, and I would have before before we started this conversation. In the future, I'll record an intro that will then play before this and say I'm talking to Pat Lemieux and give a little bit of who you are. But sure, you were down there with your wife, Gwen. That's right. Jorgensen, that's right. That's right. And you uh, after hanging up the, the, the wheels for yourself as a, as a bicycle racer, you sort of, uh, started, started a new gig with her, which, you know, I know, I know, I know you've gone through this story before, but just to give a little background for maybe some folks who aren't, aren't familiar with who you are. I mean, that, what was it, what became the main career for Pat Lemieux after that point? Um, I, you know, look, I think the, since, uh, right around end of 2012, early 2013, um, you know, my, primary role has been caretaker of sorts. So, you know, it was, I've been a caretaker for my wife, Gwen, for a long time that could look like cleaning her bike back when she was doing triathlon, that could be drying out her shoes when she was, uh, now in a professional runner that could be, uh, being a caretaker for my son, Stanley. Uh, now there's a component, uh, you know, kind of with my like I'll call it my second or third act. Um, I'm a caretaker for athletes. Um, you know, and that can be wrapped up in a role of being, you know, their agent, manager, whatever they want to view me as. But uh, ultimately, like this, this is kind of, yeah, where I've landed now and what, what I'm focused on. Do you think that started even back when you were racing? You were out there as, as sort of a team player on on in cycling. And that that seems like it's kind of the same role that you you've taken on after that. Yeah, I think that's all I've always wanted to view myself as somebody that could, you know, provide a layup for somebody else. And I think that, um, you know, that's not, that's not a hard thing for me to say. That's just, I think what my biggest strength is, is, is being there to, to help provide opportunities for others. So be it teammates in the past, that's where I, see, that's where I got a lot of joy from was, was, you know, I've, I won some races back in my day 
too, but I got just as much joy from, from being a part of a team um, and being a part of a team, no matter what my role is, that's something that I always really cherish and enjoy. And I want to be a part of still. So, yeah, I think I've been on a lot of different teams in my life now and, and I don't, um, I don't get picky about the role that I'm in within the organization, but I want to do the best work possible no matter what I'm doing. You talk about victories and you knew, I mean, it's coming in early. You knew I wouldn't make it through here (laughs) without talking about, especially for a cyclocross podcast, you're, you know, I I think the top of the mountain for you for victories, of course, being the 2012 Minnesota state championship in cyclocross. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really thrilled that you went there. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously any race winning is a is a is a moment that I'm proud of in my book, but yeah, that was uh it that's been a minute since I won that race and that was a that was a cool one. I think for the uh for listeners of Cyclocross Radio and also members of the Wide Angle Podium, I can't mention that race without pointing out that you know, you did beat little guy Matt Allen in ninth yeah. place <laughs> and then we can't leave out 29th one spot out of last place spencer howe coming in there hey now there we go <laughs> very cool okay see De- decor decorated field so yeah um yeah, yeah. awesome uh I, I i will mention just to, just to be a completist here pat that uh, at that point tim hayes was already uh, the the last of the slow ride hosts was already in florida and and, and finished and he 12th kids. he finished 12th in that year's uh florida state cyclocross championship hey congrats to tim top 13 um <laughs> i will just say one little funny anecdote and we don't need to go down that that thing but i uh at that period i was all over the i was traveling a ton with gwen that fall but i was trying to take like cyclocross seriously um, but her and I had done a three or four day vacation in San Francisco. And I think we walked a marathon every single day in the city. And I'm not, I'm, you know, even at the level of the state championship in Minnesota, I knew I was going to win that race no matter what. I was just, the, that walking made me so darn fit going up and down <laughs> all those hills all day. It was like this weird, this was kind of before like the low intensity fat burning got really popular. And if I reflect back on that, like I think that there was some serious adaptation that came from that, from that honeymoon trip or whatever we were doing in san francisco oh that's great i can't i can't wait for everybody to start start their uh their 10 miles of walks every day for training it's gonna be good you're gonna see it was it was insane yeah yeah just before we get off of the uh the cyclocross bit i i am i am impressed that i'm just just looking at your cross results 2019 still i mean before the pandemic you're still out there uh racing cross (sighs) yeah i mean cross is something that's been always super, super special to me. And unfortunately I just don't get enough time to do it anymore, but I love, you know, I grew up wrenching on bikes and, you know, cross is obviously very technically specific. So I've always prided myself on, you know, having equipment that was in top running order and tire selection that was correct. So like the bike nerd in me still just love cyclocross. Um, you know, it's, we live in, I mean, I live in Oregon, obviously cross crusade is huge here. Um, it's really cool to be part of a scene like the cross crusade. And, you know, there's, you get, you come to a a race weekend and there's six or 800 unique registrations on a given weekend. And it's, it's really cool to be a part of. I know this is not like, you know, right now we've got Claire Hansinger who was, was born and bred from this system, but obviously like the, this area doesn't put out a ton of elite cyclocross athletes, even though I would say the, the base is really, really solid. So I don't know what, what's particular about that, but, um, it's been, it's been really, really enjoyable to be, to be doing the cross crusade series. And I, and I, uh, I really, really hope that cyclocross racing returns this fall. Did you, are you from Minnesota? Did you grow up there or where are you from? Uh, well, really, actually, I'm from Fargo, North Dakota, but okay. I grew up, Minnesota was always, the Twin Cities was always like my racing scene. So we'd drive the three and a half hours to the Twin Cities to go do the, you know, the bike races there. And uh, that was where I first started doing cyclocross. I remember you're bringing back some memories. I think my first cyclocross race would have been in 2002 and I was on like a 
28 pound surly cross check. And I was like this, you know, I was in ninth grade. So I would have been, you know, 14 or 15 years old, like just a 120 pound kid trying to carry this super heavy bike. Um, and I was just, I just remember like, I didn't really understand cross, but I just, I love, we had a, we had an awesome cross facility that we used in, um, in Fargo. And I've been, you know, I've been doing it in one world, one form or fashion for uh, coming up on 20 years. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was happy for you to see that, that you still, you know, 13 races <laughs> in 2019. That's really cool for every, everything else that you have on your plate that you're still, yeah, you're still, no, still finding cool. that I mean, time. It was, I mean, you know, think about it. Like I was, I did this Oregon state championships last year and I think I was eighth or ninth on in the race, but I had to out sprint Eric Tonkin for the win or not for the win for eight, whatever place I got yeah. eighth or ninth. Yeah. Right. And it was like, I was so keyed up for that final sprint. Like we were doing the laps and like, I remember he'd been pulling me forever and we got to one lap to go. And I said, Eric, I said, you know, you can, you can get eighth or we can race this last lap. And he's like, no, 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 I'm cool. Like, let's, let's race the last lap. And like, you know, we, I did like a weird move in the final corner to get to, to get it. And like, it was, I mean, it was cool, but I was racing a, I was racing a childhood hero and it, it felt like a, you know, victory for me. So yeah, I'll, um, cross is probably the only thing that motivates me to still exercise on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and that's, so, that's such a great story too, because that's, that's pretty much the the pinnacle of what we tell people about cyclocross. It's like, you're not racing for the win, but between you and Eric, that was, that was the race that, for the win. And that's what makes yeah. it, you know, a road race, you really, you know, you're doing a crit, you're, you're not getting that you're rolling in. Yeah. Once you're out the hoop in a road race or a crit, like you're just, you're out. So I think, um, yeah, it'll be interesting, you know, bigger picture, you know, what, where does cross in the U S go? I don't, I don't know. Um, is it going to be where, you know, I think about when I started racing cross, it was a, B and C races. And, you know, there was an introductory intro, the introduction of categories, maybe overcomplicated things and it didn't make it as appealing for some other people. So I don't know. My hope is, is that we really see a rebirth across post pandemic. I think we're going to see, um, obviously bikes are just going through the roof right now. And I think we're going to see this weird thing where in the nineties and early two thousands, it was people taking their mountain bikes to race cyclocross this time around. It's going to be people taking their gravel bikes to go race cyclocross. So like the bridge back to cross, I think is much, much shorter um, than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point too. I mean, that part is like huge. Yeah. If we can, we saw the big sort of push to gravel and maybe you're right. Maybe that, that when that wave sort of comes back in, maybe it will bring people back to cyclocross. But I, the, the, the changing of the categories is something I haven't thought about in a long time. And I think you're right there too. It's, 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 you know, and it's something that I think it's going to sort of lead into our, our discussion as we go here, but it's, it's something where we take such pride in it being a, participatory sport and something that's supposed to be fun. And I know you and I, when we came up in it, that's kind of what it was when it had those categories and you had a ton of people sort of like what the mountain biking scene was like, I just want to go out and race and I just want to have fun. And then the complaints became, well, it's just too competitive. It's ultra competitive. People are bringing three bikes to a, you know, cat three race and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, we want to foster an environment where young riders can excel and can grow and can develop into elite racers and compete with not only the best in North America, but also the best in the world. So how do we, how do we have a system that kind of takes all of that in, keeps it fun for amateurs, keeps it fun for juniors, but at the yeah. same time is able to push them into, into that next level. And that's, I think that's, you know, we could, I know we could sit there and talk forever talk about, about that. Forever. But, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and I, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is. You know, sometimes I think about the format, right, of, of where we have, how we have the races laid out. And I'll use Cross Crusade as an example, which is a series that I want to commend whoever, I don't even know who owns it or organizes it, but I, um, I love doing those races. I think that one thing that I always think is, you know, we should have the elite races in the middle of the program 
So the people that are coming early in the morning, we get the most amount of eyeballs on the highest, we'll call it like the highest categories of racing. So they could see like, what does it look like? What, what can other people aspire to get to? Um, And I think a lot of times, you know, when the, when the elite men's is the last race of the day, people want to, people want to peace out and be done. And they just, they don't, don't, they don't view it. So I think one, you know, if we want to foster elite sport, I think that's one way to put a, put a bigger spotlight on it. That's interesting to me. Um, you know, and I, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. So you were talking about first act, second act, third act. We sort of spent our first time here with that, with that racing bit that you did and, and talked a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your roles with, with Gwen and Stanley, you know, being a dad, being a husband, but also, you know, cooking meals and, and dealing with logistics and everything like that. And, and yep. what I can tell from the outside, that sort of, uh, led you to sort of this third act where you have now dipped your toes into the athlete management world and have a, a stable of athletes that you are, are representing and where did that come from? What's the, what's the vision there? What are you, what is, what is, what is your, what are your hopes and dreams in the athlete uh, management world, Pat? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think, um, you know, the Genesis story with, with that is, and and I want to preface this by saying, you know, I'm not my wife's agent. Um, I, I've, I I tell people, you know, being next to her, I've, I've got my, uh, bachelor's degree in athlete management, just sitting next to her for her career. Um, I say I'm working on my master's right now. And can one I, day I'd like to have, can I just jump in and say that makes you a good, good, um, athlete manager just to start with that. You were smart enough not to be your, your yeah, wife's sure. manager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, yes, it was, a uh, yeah, that, that it's not a decision that her and I had to like wrestle about. Like, we're just like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. So, um, get that out of the way. I think, um, you know, and then now I say I'm working on, I'm working on my master's and one day I'd like to have my, uh, PhD in, in sports management. Um, you know, I think the Genesis story for how I started doing this was I got a call from a young woman named Ellen Noble, who I'm sure you've had on this podcast at different times. Um, you know, she just said, you know, I think, I know that you've sat next to an, uh, a high level endurance female. And I think you probably know enough to help me out. And it was a, it was a really interesting phone call where, you know, she, she believed in me before I knew that this was something that I could be doing in the future. And she took a big risk on me. Um, and so I really, I mean, I owe, I owe Ellen a ton for doing that. Um, and then it slowly just morphed into adding more athletes and I've got a cycling team and, um, you know, Gwen and I really struggled figuring out what we were going to do post her career. This has been um, an amazing thing that we've stumbled upon and kind of accidentally fallen into. And this is absolutely, you know, Gwen's a CPA. um, So she does, we were doing book work this morning and uh, she loves looking at, uh, she loves looking at uh, contracts. So this is, she's, she's all in on my, uh, on my third act and it'll be, you know, her second act or whatever for her when she's, when she's done with her career. So yeah, I think this is where you'll, this is hopefully where you'll find me for the next 20 or 30 years. So when, when Ellen comes to you or any of your athletes, uh, and, and says that she, she wants to work with you, what does that mean? What does that look like? What is that? What are her expectations of you? And what sure. are you realistically telling her that you can do? Sure, sure. So real simple, like I boil my job down to the number one thing I'm supposed to do for my clients is get them as much money as possible. How do we, we have to step back from that and go, what's the best pathway to do that? And I say a lot of times, if you're one of my athletes, like, unfortunately, you've got to hear like all these things I got to say all the time. So and I always, I always lean on success leaves clues. I said, you know, luckily my wife has left a lot of clues in her career. Um, and so I go, what does success look like? Can we try and trace out and map out a performance plan to ultimately make money? Um, so, you know, we'll use Ellen as a case study. She's been very public about, you know, what she's had going on and, in the sport. And there was, it was, you you know, a lot of Ellen was, was organizing her health and trying to get that set, trying to get 
Hurst on the right course there. So, um, you know, I didn't play a role in that, but I had an understanding of like, look, job number one for you isn't to find sponsors and nurture those deals. It's to get healthy and to be happy. And then we can move forward and you can begin training and we can be, you know, looking for any, uh, opportunities with, um, with potential sponsors. Being uh, sticking, I mean, not specifically with Ellen, but let's, let's say cyclocross elite cyclocross racers in the U S just, just as a, as a class, they, I think we can count on one, maybe two hands, but probably just one, the number of athletes in the U S on any given year who can support themselves fully off of racing cyclocross. I mean, it's, Yep. It's, it's a hard gig, right? For sure. And you, yep. you come from this when you were racing bikes. Yep. I mean, can you say any year in your bike racing career that you made enough money to truly live off of? No, no, not beyond rent, you know, not to ever own a home or actually have any sort of uh, substance outside of living with a few other people, <laughs> you know, like all of that. Do you think that that is something that can never change for domestic racers. I'll, I'll even throw road in there to, for most of the road racers. Yeah. For most of the road racers. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, what we're seeing right now, we're in a really interesting place in, I would say athlete sports marketing and team sponsorship and all of that, where, um, you know, right now, if you're a successful individual that isn't on a team, and we'll just, I mean, this isn't like private information. Like look at what Colin Strickland has said about being a privateer versus racing for EF. He can do better being a privateer. He doesn't need to be under the team umbrella. So I think there is a world where cyclocross fits individuals very, very well. And I think if we le- if we look at case studies um, in the U.S., you know, you had somebody like Jeremy Powers who did his own program. You look at, you know, even even somebody like Todd Wells back in the day was really kind of doing a, a specialized factory or whatever his factory team was at the time, but really doing a privateer program. Um, you know, my hope is, is that we can get back to the days of old. I think when I grew up bike racing, I think there were, gosh, in 2008, I did a count the other day i think there were 10 teams that i figured were all over a four hundred thousand dollar budget for on in domestic road racing now i'd say there's probably one maybe two teams um excluding you know at a continental level that exceed four hundred thousand dollars in their budget so um you know my hope is is that with the bike boom that we've seen down the road there will be a reconfiguration of what sponsorship looks like, but currently in a social media focused um, environment, individuals are shining over teams and individuals um, that have invested in themselves and want to provide value outside of a results sheet for their sponsors are really, are really shining through. Um, So, you know, does I guess, Bill, you would be as good to jam on this as I am, but I would say, we, you know, was the, are we ever going to get back to the highs of, you know, probably 2008 to 2012 for U.S. cyclocross? Would I, you, would you, would you say that that was the, that was the peak? If I said no, I should probably just like pack it up, but it's definitely, I don't know. My, my outlook on that changes a couple of years ago, you know, we, we had that, you're absolutely right. And we had that, 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 um, uh, plateau like it was huge growth and everything plateaued and i think we're still on that do we get another growth now that's what i'm hoping for i'm hoping that you know the the consolidation of the of the national schedule and other things we can we can bring it back but that's i think that's where we always have to to look towards and it's funny because for years it's not funny i've been using Norba and, and mountain biking in the U S where I, everybody, you know, 10 years ago when people were like cyclocross is like the biggest thing, it's just going to grow, grow, grow. And my whole mantra was always go talk to somebody who raced mountain bikes in the nineties, 
you know, yes. when it when it was the same yeah. thing. It was the biggest thing ever, eighties, yeah. nineties. It was it wasn't going anywhere. It was huge, and, that, and now it's pretty much gone. Uh, I hope we don't fall into that. I hope I hope that it comes back. But I I, I do I part of that I think is what you're saying with this with this sort of move to privateers. It's 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 crazy how sport follows the rest of the business world in that most people now are stuck in a gig economy. And you can see that in athletes as well. It's what you're talking about. People going Mm -hmm. out on their own and having to make it on their own. So I guess the question is, and you sort of touched on it, that with results sheets, I think that 10 years ago, somebody was going to come to you and say, Hey, I'm winning all these races, go out and get me sponsors and that's, I'm just going to put my feet up because I need to, you know, elevate for uh, eight hours here a day and then do yeah. my training. And uh, it's not my job to, to promote myself. That's, that's your job. Um, I'm doing yeah. what I'm supposed to do, getting the results. That doesn't seem like it's the model anymore. I don't think so. And that's not what I advocate, um, you know, speaking to my clients as well. So I think, you know, you, you have to understand that, as an athlete now, unfortunately, you've got a ton of jobs. You've got to do your job as an athlete, and then you've got to do your job as a salesperson. And and how and what channel and what medium are you going to sell through? I think is um, is 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 a massive part of the job. And I don't think that 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 wasn't the case as much ten years ago. And I don't know what it's going to look like ten years from now. But I know that right now, you know, the athletes that are doing the best are uh, the the ones that have that are wearing a few different hats. Yeah, I mean, you even go back, I always think about, you know, you hear the stories of Greg LeMond, like when he first came into the sport and within a couple of years, he was pulling down, I think like the first, it might've been a million dollar contract, whatever it was. And all of the Europeans were like, he hasn't done anything. You know, why is this guy, this guy hasn't been a team leader for this many years and all this kind of stuff. But it was, it was sort of that, that new look that LeMond sort of implemented into advocating for the athlete. And that becoming the the type of structure that I think you need. You know, we can go to guys as much as we don't want to talk about everything else. Somebody like Lance, somebody like that, where it was all this self-promotion that seemed to push it. There are a lot of people and a lot of athletes who want to be athletes and they don't want to be self-promoters. So I'm assuming that's, that's part of your job is to convince somebody that, it, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a, uh, it's not a bad thing. It's not a pejorative to, to, to promote yourself. No, no, not at all. And I think, you know, you can find your different lane of what you want to do. Um, you know, I think about people that I interact with and look at on social. One of the guy that comes to mind right now is dangerous Dave. It's like this guy that's just a dude, I'm assuming like you or me, but he does these sweet lines in BC and he's just probably got two GoPros, one on his chest and one on his helmet. And he's just doing all the crazy lines out in BC. And I'm just so into, like, every time I watch one of his videos, I go, I need to go ride there. That place looks awesome. Yeah. And, like, he spurs an emotion with me that I think is really cool. And, you know, there's, I would convince him that there's a way that he can monetize that and convert sales and be interesting to brands. And maybe he's got five brands that sponsor him. I have no clue. I just know that when I look at something that he's doing, I immediately envision myself there and wish I was riding with him. So when you do that for, for people who come to you, what are you, what are you doing as far as, brands and and support for that rider and especially monetary support you know starting with if they're not on a team they have to I, i'm assuming, it's it's a couple different steps right i mean they have to figure out stuff that they need for their job be it bike and all of that kind of stuff but then on top of that you know it's it's what else on top of that especially what i look at it is like as soon as you can uh tap into the non-endemic um support and and sponsors then then you're sort of on your way and and yep. so what 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 is it what is it that you're looking for to sort of to to create a portfolio for an athlete for them be, to be able to do that sure so i kind of think of you know what uh, we look at two things what do you want to accomplish what do you want to accomplish as an athlete right what are your goals where do you want to win what do you where do you want to get to what are your 
what are your passions and your hobbies outside of cycling? And then I kind of, and what I call it is I envision um, a train of potential sponsors. And I picture in my, in my little office, I picture the train going by and me grabbing sponsors, the little train cars off of it and say, okay, I'd like to put this brand in, you know, I'd like to put Ellen in front of this brand and that's how I visualize it. And that's how I picture it. So, you know, Ellen and I will toss ideas back and forth. I'll use her as an example um, of what we think fits could be. And, you know, she's never said this to me, but say she says, you know, a brand that's way out that I don't think is feasible, Tesla. I'll just say, Ellen, I love you. You're not getting a Tesla. (laughs) And then we'll keep, we'll keep working. So it's always a work in progress. Um, You know, and it's, uh, we, we just try to realize from a, from a product standpoint, what do you need to perform? Okay, let's see if that's a fit. So that's endemic. That's really easy. And then outside non-endemic, what's what's available and what aligns with you? So, you know, Ellen's had a sponsor, Pete and Jerry's Eggs, for I think three years now. Awesome. She's great for them. She's a she's a young woman can talk about her uh, trials and tribulations in the kitchen and how she uses their products to perform. So that's I think a real. We'll use a word that I don't like using. Authentic. Uh, it's a buzzword, but that's an authentic fit for her. When you're look when you're working with an athlete or even looking for athletes, you know, going back to to cyclocross and we're looking at 2021 and even going into early 2022 for cyclocross racers in North America and this this is potentially, you know, after we we had Worlds in 2012, you know, before that you had Cross Vegas, you had, you know, or yeah, around the Cross Vegas, you had some World Cups coming in, but this is kind of the culmination of that for this year. You you have yeah. three World Cups early in the season, and then at the end of the season, everyone comes to the U.S. It's really potentially, and Louisville was amazing and it was huge, but this yeah. has the potential to be even bigger than that. You have the World Championships yeah in Fayetteville, you know, having people yep. build up to that. Any is when Fayetteville comes up, what is it? What is it that you're, you're thinking about? So I had no idea what was going to happen with these early season world cups. I, you know, if you when the schedule came out, what, 10 days, two weeks ago, I would have figured it would have been, it was going to be Waterloo and then worlds in Fayetteville. I didn't realize that Iowa city and, well, Fayetteville World Cup were on. Is, is it Fayette, it's Fayetteville World Cup and then Fayetteville? Yeah, World so Cup, right? they they get two shots at at the world this year. Same, yeah, same. Is it same course both times? Yes. So they're previewing the world's course at the World Cup. Yep. Perfect. So I had no idea that was on the card. So I saw the schedule come out, and um, all I can think is it's just an unbelievable opportunity for athletes, brands, uh, and the U.S racing all together um this is this is usa cycling's uh probably greatest opportunity for you know i we'll call it sponsorship we'll call it athlete recruitment all in one um you've got the i could never imagine a world where and probably you either where there's three world cups and then following a world championship in north america it's just crazy um, so what I would encourage athletes and brands to do is figure out a way for those races to help boost your portfolio and boost whatever you're doing. And my hope is ultimately that USA cycling comes out with a policy that's, um, very inclusive of athletes being able to race at world championships. You know, my hope is, is that for all categories, the junior U23 and that elite, because we're a home nation, we're going to get eight spots per race. Um, we need 48 athletes present racing at world championships. We need, you know, somebody that earns their way onto a team that's today that's ranked 20th to get motivated and figure out a way to be the eighth best person in a race. And we need the eyeballs from their supporting bike shop, any supporting sponsors they pick up. We need to capture as many eyeballs and a much, as much emotion for bicycle racing as possible in the U S with this opportunity. And, um, 
my hope is is that we we see this as an opportunity to to get as many people racing cyclocross as possible. If we have a if we have a very exclusive rider selection policy, we're going to have a very exclusive and a very limited amount of sponsors that want to be a part of this. And we need to have, um, we need to have as many people be a part of it as possible. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, uh, it's actually, it could possibly be more than that. Cause now a month ago, we didn't think this was happening. Uh, the ruts and guts group in Oklahoma has, has now stepped up and they're hosting the continental championship continental winner, you know, and I'm not I'm not discounting our friends from Canada and Mexico sure. and wherever else that may come sure. in there and, and, sure. and win some of those those championships like they have done in the past. But there is the potential for because that's a that's a that's an add-on. So that's a ninth. If you yeah. get that, that's a ninth. So it's yeah. eight plus one. I mean, yeah. So it's like even bigger than that. But what you bring up is I think the biggest debate that's going on in USA cycling right now, uh I when I was talking to Jeff Pierce, who's who's in charge of this for USA cycling for the world selection this year where it, it was a, it was a non non-factor. It didn't matter. You could matter. USA yeah. cycling could draw the hardest line they wanted to. They could be the biggest hard asses. We're only taking, you know, people who we think are the best in the world and put them on the world's team. It didn't matter. They only had six people going. So it wasn't, yep. it wasn't a big deal. When you port that over to a championship in the U S you're exactly right. The pressure on them to in 2020, put down this, this just, bright line this is we're not taking them if they don't meet these strict requirements and then having that pressure it's going to be really really yeah. interesting to see yeah and bill it's really sim- the, the solution to that is really simple keep i like the, i love the policy they did in 2020 they need to have an exclusive policy because we need to have athletes performing at the top of the at in the top of the world so here's the deal you keep the exact same policy for as you had for 21 worlds as you do for 22 and then everybody else that doesn't fit that criteria. So if you could have three riders of the 48 potentially that meet the criteria, the remaining 45, you can qualify for worlds and then you can pay for all your own way there. Yeah. Which isn't that it's big not, of a deal this year either. It's not that, com- it's not that complicated. Yeah. So I, I just think like, you know, this isn't me asking for suggesting that USA cycling comes up with a million dollars to support cyclocross. It's to say, look, you have probably 45 people that would pay to participate in a world championships. Use the pro CX calendar that I think is awesome. And just say, look, we're going to take however many, if there's eight slots available for the men, because nobody earned an auto, we're going to take your top five races from the U S pro calendar and rank them. And we're going to take the top eight men. That, that Part of that's kind of what I'm advocating for a little bit out in that if you look at the the qualifi- qualifiers now, it's all European-based. I understand the reasoning behind that. You want to measure your athletes against the best in the world. What I fear yep. is what that does. You took talk about the Pro CX, how great that is, is that it diminishes that and it makes it into something that is seen as not important. Yep, and you can have a criteria that would say, look, if you podium at a World Cup, Automatic selection. Great. If you top five out of whatever super prestige or whatever they're called now, we're going to acknowledge that as well. So your your pathway and your way to expedite the process to not do the 10 U.S. pro races is to go and perform at a world-class level abroad. The problem is, is there's only, you know, one, one and a half athletes that have demonstrated that they are podium potential in the world in cyclocross. So, yeah, I think if we want to, tr- we want to try and bolster U.S. cross racing and attendance, and we want, you know, I want to see Colin Strickland bring his gravel bike to, you know, and think like this is how I get on. This is how I earn my world spot. This is, you know, this would be cool. This would be a nice little feather in my cap. And I think like we should. Uh, I, that's that's what I'd like to see happen. That 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 kind of stuff I love too, and that's even even the UCI and all of their stuffiness kind of had that idea with uh, cyclocross this year. It didn't work out because you know we didn't have the same World Cup uh, schedule, but they had floated this idea that even for our our World Cup races, third row is going to be like this. You know, if you are 
the best mountain biker in the world or whatever else you want to come from another, yeah. another discipline, we'll, we'll save you a spot there and sort of make it fun and interesting, which I thought was a great idea. So that's sort of, that's interesting. I like this where, uh, uh, you know, your non, non-typical cyclocross athletes may, may jump in there. And it's also, I mean, this is, this is, I think where USA cycling can do this at least this year it is a it's a special case right we're in it's the united special states case, yeah it, we, i would not i would not advocate this if the world championships were in switzerland belgium right. etc but when it's at home soil you you have to look at this through a different lens and see it as a as an opportunity to grow the sport and we we've already seen where those types of exceptions have been made for the last several years and have paid off in that when the world comes to the U S for these world cup races, the home country, the U S and we saw it when it was in Italy, we see it when it was in France, but they, they get a double allotment. We get 16 athletes yep. in there because it is a special case. So this is sort of yep. along those same lines. Yep. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I, I, I hope that, I hope that for, I am, I, I, I have, I go back and forth on this and I, I, I agree. I think I agree with you. I want to see the people who at least in some form, have potential to to compete and i think that it it really yeah. is it is really how you define competing like we were just talking about with your sprint against eric tonkin you guys were not sprinting for the win <laughs> you were still competing for the top 10 that's not a podium yeah. spot but that's still like something that you may even get on tv right yeah. if it's it was, a world cup i i mean look Let's just we'll use a we'll use a guy like Payson as an example. He's physically capable of making the top eight spots for the men's roster. That would be awesome. Like he should go to the like I would I would tell him, dude, bust your butt for four or five months and do this cross thing. Like go go to world championships. Like that would be cool. You'll never regret that. Like you can do it. And I would and I just think that that's what you. That's the thought that you want to create for as many U.S. athletes as possible. Because what we need is we need, especially with this Pro CX calendar where they knocked it out of the park and it is the right schedule and it's good. Um, they need as many people at those races as possible. They need we need to be excited about bike racing again when this pandemic's over. And uh, I think that this is there's an amazing runway laid out for that to happen. I see it. I mean, maybe it's just me and I'm projecting, but I just know from talking with people, it's, I, I, I know last year at this time, I had just gotten back from Switzerland from the world championships and was dead. And was like, I didn't want to hear anything about cyclocross until, you know, July, yeah. uh, yeah. already talking about it. Like we're already talking, we're already planning it out. So I, I really yeah. hope that that's, that people are going to be so jazzed up. And that was, that was the promise that we told people last year was like, look, let's not, let's not do these virtual races. Let's not try to, you know, yep. simulate what cyclocross should be. It's not going to be it. Let's just come back this next yep. season and just let's completely just hit, crush let's just it. Hit, let's just hit pause for a yeah, year. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> getting, getting back to the, to the, the, the agent side of things. So here's a, here's a, here's a sort of out of the box, um, question for you. I, I, I am coming to you as as a media company that works in the cycling cycling industry. Uh, let's say hypothetically that I just started this uh, Substack. I moved everything over to there. It's a subscription based service where I'm putting out all of my cyclocross content, tying in a podcast, tying in YouTube videos. Yet like every athlete out there getting sponsorship money to support that is, is a tough gig. It's not, it's not something that is easy. It's uh, I, I'm, you know, hypothetically not new to the space and have, have been, have been uh, dealing with that stuff for a while, but it's also something that I think that coverage is something that, in your job, it's something you need for your athletes. You're like talking about yeah, where course. they have to do it for themselves, but at the other time, somebody has to do it for them as well. What would you, what would you, what would your, uh, uh, advice be for somebody that would be in that type of position to, to try to better support what they're doing? 
I'm going to give a really long-winded answer. So if I miss something, we need to just go back to it because I want to make sure that I answer your question completely. So first, I want to say one thing. When I, when I try to establish what number I'm going to pitch to a sponsor for a price, I have a little unique calculator that I've built up to come up with my first anchor number. Inside that criteria of what, how I come up with that anchor number is a little box that says, is there coverage of the race? So for you, so that I, when you talked about race coverage and how important that is, that's something that I position value around for my athletes is will an audience be able to watch this race? So now let's go back to your, your direct piece and selling, selling your, uh, your media company. When was the last time you did a spend this video? Sven, yes, 2014, 15, somewhere around there. Okay. I watched all of them when you did them, right? I go back to the emotion piece. I think about me riding on the trainer, you know, Sven, this videos, and thinking about how I would incorporate those, I'll call them like features or like notable things that you were always checking along the way. And I, the one that I think about, it's like the one where Sven had his one hand on the shifter, one hand on the top of the handlebar. And like, you know, it was goofy and you noted it. And then what would I do when I'd be out riding in a position, like in a training thinking about, okay, like I'm going to try and do that thing right now that Bill honed and focused in on for that episode and try that. And then thinking about that. So I think, from an, from early on, you understood and captured emotion, and you, you captured something that wasn't being done. Um, now, part two into how do we sell this? And you know, obviously, this is always like chicken and the egg debate. I have no when you go and cover a race, I have no concept of how much that costs. Can do you mind sharing that? Like, if I want to replicate what you do at a race, how much is it going to cost me? Not including the equipment startup. Yeah, without the equipment, uh, yep. it, you know, first it would be travel would be in there. So let's say we're yep. flying somewhere. So let's just put it at an average of a five to six hundred dollars, right? You know, place to stay, car, something like that. You're around a thousand dollars just in in those costs, just to to start yep. with. And then the po- and then the I mean, sometimes how many GoPros do you bring to a race? Uh, well, if, if I'm doing it by myself, I'll, I'll probably try to put out at least three or four, three, four, five GoPros. Uh, it, normally, I will do a track walk. I'll try to, depending on, it depends a lot of, you know, if, if it's what I'm hired to do also. You know, if, if somebody yeah. is hiring me to do a full-on coverage of their race, then it can be anywhere from, budget-wise me doing a solo to me actually bringing somebody along with me and that's that's just yep. a whole a whole nother story uh once once i am there it is you know out of pocket costs if we're not talking about equipment and everything else that's kind of it it's getting there and yeah. getting to the race now and then your your time invested to do the post the, the time the time piece is what i think people don't value i mean we're talking you know, we're trying to get people a fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage in this country, right? So, if I arrive, my normal plan is to arrive somewhere Friday morning. If I'm at the airport, I get in my rental car, I go to the venue directly, and I talk to people for a little while, may do an interview or two, and then do a track walk. I want to get that that course yep. preview in, oof, and out. Friday night because those races are happening over the weekend from showing up at the venue to editing all of that, doing a voiceover, getting it out there. That's like eight hours on that day. Wake up the next morning, get to the venue early, set everything up, talk to people, record the elite races, do interviews, go back, edit it. That's usually ending up, say, 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, that's another 12 hours. That's 24. That's like 36 hours out of the weekend, just straight up work. So 
do yeah. I have I, I already was, so, have I already paid all of my cameras? Yes. Have I already paid all of my and yeah. on top of that, usually to help fund what I am doing, I will sometimes also have photography clients there as well. Yep. It's a real help me understand the what I always have a hard time grasping is the chicken and the egg of is it better to advertise the views that you get? and then sell against the free views? Or would it be better to have a subscription service that people buy into? And some of that is a bit more hidden. And that's what I always, I, I go back to Gwen's triathlon days and the ITU did a, her, her races were covered so well, mm -hmm. but they charged like $30 a year, which to, to get access to all 10 of them. And I always said, I'm like, look guys, it's 30 bucks. Just make it free and allow as many people to watch it as possible and then take that number and then go and sell that within the race to whoever you want. So I'd say that's my biggest question for you is what are we, what are we selling here? Are we selling the subscription model or in which I know that's what you said, but I would say, you know, or is there a world where we just run an ad within it that it's brought to you by? I think it's a hybrid. So we started the subscription model really as a goodwill from people, which yeah. I, and, and we got that support and that's great. And that's, that's yeah. the grassroots part of it, right? That's, that's where people want to support independent media and we, Zach and I cannot be more grateful that they did within that. Anytime I put out either a heat check video, cyclocross television video, CXs and O's started these all of those were available for free. I was not going to yep. charge for those. I was going to, I was going to promote them through the subscription service, but I was going to have those posts as free. So it's just an email sign up. So I, I yep. understand that's all, that's all I would rather have all of that in the open. Same with a podcast. I'm never going to like give somebody a subscription based thing for the yep. podcast. I mean, I want as many yep. people to listen to it and hopefully share it. The, so I think it's more having that advertiser for me. And I'm sorry that this podcast has started to turn. You've turned <laughs> this thing around. This was, this was supposed to be you, Pat, but I guess this is showing, this is good. No, no, that's good. <laughs> um, the, the, the thing that I always run up against is that I will have sponsors, which I love. And I've worked with some great sponsors but if they are endemic sponsors, my content works better when I have the engagement of the, the, the athletes who I have a relationship with. I just, you know, I, I think I have a pretty good relationship with most cyclocross athletes in North yeah. America, not as much as in Europe. That, that, that makes it less fun for me. You, you know, when I did the stuff yeah. this year, it was fine, but I don't have that personal engagement. My problem is if I get somebody like XYZ tire company to be a title sponsor of my series. It's great for me in that it covers my costs. It's not great for me in that some of the athletes who I want to be engaged and share this, and that's what I count on it. They're not going to because, and I understand it because they're, yep. they have a different, uh, you know, tire sponsor. Yep. So that's yep. kind of the, that's kind of the problem that I fall into a lot. Yep. Um, which you wouldn't have just from an athlete because they're like, no, these are my guys yeah, and that's yeah, that. But, I'm, but, but we're dealing this with, we're dealing with this a lot right now in the sense of so many brands right now are doing podcasts, right? So we'll call it brand. I mean, we'll just say, I'm just going to make something up. Specialized has a podcast. At some point they are going to run out of specialized athletes to have on their podcast and it shouldn't be about just that little ecosystem that they're boosting, right? Right. It should be falling outside of that. And I think about, um, you know, I'll just, I'll use an example. If Rally starts a podcast next week, at some point they should go to riders that had a touch point with that team, be it one year ago or 10 years ago. And it's interesting. Or, you know, a person a rally guy and a whatever gets second place to somebody let's bring on the guy that they out sprinted them and like talk about what that final K looked like. I think that would be really interesting. So 
I would hope that brands can understand you're there to tell a story and feature a race and they want to be next to that. And my hope is, is that brands want to be more involved in cyclocross post the 2021 and 2022 cyclocross season, even if it's not something where you're sitting here positioning a Maxis tire at every single point that you can, you know, like they're, they're, they're happy to support you and they know that you're going to do right by them. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause I, I'll tell you the situation I loved. And of course you can understand why I love it, but it's also, I think it worked for the sponsor as well is that I would in the past, I had created content that featured a certain brand's racer and then after the fact would go to the sponsor and say, Hey, this is coming out. You know, you're going to be all over it. Do you want to sponsor it? And, and it was early on. I had this conversation and, and they were like, yeah, we'll give you, you know, I, I think it was like just a thousand dollars, whatever. Fine. Perfect. I was like, great. Do you want your logo on there or anything like that? And they were like, no. And I thought that was so smart because they're, it's going through my channel they're yep. getting the the benefit of it. It's obviously their spot, their their athlete riding their you know their gear and everything else. They're helping me create it. Yet yep. they don't have to be splashed on it. So it means that people don't feel like a I'm working for the man and yep. b it's something that isn't you get past that brand loyalty even though it's it's yep. still there. And that's that's kind of yep. like that. That's the that's the kind of the perfect situation, but I don't think a lot of marketing departments really think like that. Uh, yeah, it's tough. And we're, we're, we're in a wild West period of sponsorship. And like you've, you've dealt with it, um, through this, you've been doing a podcast before podcasts were cool. So like, you've seen the whole, what does it, what does it mean? And, and how do you, and how do you leverage it? And I think, uh, we're, we're just going to keep being in that period. So, you know, I think obviously with, um, going back to how do we, how do you sell your race coverage in your media? And I think, unfortunately, you're going to keep doing it in this wild west version where you're, you're probably going to have a piece that's segmented. That's your own. That's the, we'll call it like the race recaps. And you might be able to get a sponsor for those. And then separately, you're going to be doing a double dip where you're doing race photography for a different brand. Right. And you do it. You all of a sudden are going, I've, I've known photographers and videographers that go to races and have seven or eight different clients that they're servicing within a race. So you're going to have potentially bike brands, clothing brands. And like, I would just tell you, and you already, you already know this, but like you have to think about all your train car that you need to picture is everybody that's paying somebody to race a cyclocross race and you reach out to all of them and say, Hey, I'm going here to take photos for 250 bucks. I'm going to get this amount for you and you can use it for social media. However you want, if you want commercial access, you're going to pay me 500 per image or whatever that looks like. And you've, you've done that, but I would encourage anybody else that wants to start a cyclocross media conglomerate. That would be your pathway forward with it. And my advice would be, don't do it. <laughs> we have enough already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. And it is, it's a, it's a huge hustle and it's, uh, there are a lot of great photographers out there and unfortunately not enough clients at, at this point in that, in that marketplace. So, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe that'll, that'll change as well. Yeah. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I remain optimistic about it. Pat, we're just at about an hour. Anything else you think we need to chat about? No, no, no. We're great. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for doing this. Um, I when you brought up Svenness, I was thinking, man, maybe I should repost on YouTube the Gwenness video. That was so much fun to do. I got a lot of great feedback on that. That was, that was yeah, great. that was super good. Yeah, that was super super good. Yeah, I'll um. I, I just still remember calling you and this is a line that I use all the time. I was like, y you might've asked me, you're like, well, what if I say no? And I go, 
then it won't happen because there's nobody else that can do it. <laughs> there was like something like that. So I use that line quite a bit. I'm like, if you don't do it, I'm, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Thank yeah. you, Pat. Thanks, Bill. The Slow Ride Podcast. Three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast. The titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast. The Zwift Racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast. The arrow helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast. When's Lance gonna sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast. The experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast. The gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.